to First John, first part of five. Um, but before we get started in today's content, if you have um, been with us for most of this year or really any amount of time that I've ever stood up here, you will know that I'm a big fan of people answering questions. So it is pop quiz time, which means I would love to actually hear people and not my thoughts in my own head. Um, a technique that John likes to use in writing 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John is called amplification. And that concept is the idea of yes, circling back around to the same things over and over again. And the themes that we have kind of pulled out um, and have been focusing on are these themes um, that he circles back around to over and over again of light, love, and truth, all in the um, context of abiding in Christ. And today we will be diving into those um, love and truth themes. Um, I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll, then we'll chat. All right. Father, thank you for this lovely morning. Thanks for the weather, for the sunshine. Um, and for the ability to be together in community, um, to dive into your word together. I pray that you would make this time fruitful, that your spirit um, would be moving in our hearts, helping us to hear what we need to hear. Um, we pray that the words of our mouths and the thoughts and the focus of our hearts be pleasing to you because we love you. And we pray these things in your son's name. Amen. Okay, so when I was around 12 years old, I ran away from home. I ran all of 20 feet into the woods behind my house and sat under a tree. So I don't know if that counts as running away from home, but in my almost 12-year-old brain, I ran away from home. Um, I ran away from home because my parents wouldn't let me go see the Titanic. Yeah. Um, all my friends were seeing it. It was the movie of the, like, century at that point. Like, it was a big deal. And they wouldn't let me go see it. Which was, in retrospect, as a parent myself, probably a very good choice. Um, but I was so upset. I was angry, and I was frustrated. And I viewed this, um this boundary they put on me as being unloving. I viewed it as they didn't care whether I was happy. I viewed it as they didn't care if I was a social pariah at school. It was the worst boundary in my 12-year-old life that they could have given me at that particular time. And so, rather, I responded in the best way a 12-year-old can I packed my little bag of snacks, and I ran 20 feet into the woods to a tree. <laughs> this is how I felt. Tell me something. Would you want to carry this around for any amount of time? No. Okay. It felt burdensome, that boundary that my parents gave me. I did not want to submit to it. I didn't want to carry it around. I did not um, feel joyful about it. 
And that's sometimes, I think, how we feel about God's commands, right? We feel like we are carrying a sack of books around, and we want to run away into the woods and sit under a tree for a while. And John knows this, and I think that's why he calls it out in the scripture that we are reading today. Um, Let's remember our context here, that he is writing to believers in the face of some kind of rift in the church. People have gone out from them, um, and in the face of false teaching being spread. And he's writing this um, epistle, this letter, this sermon, uh, to remind people that what they know, to remind them and assure them of what they know. Um, And he has just, as we're going into chapter five, he's just finished this long section that really starts back kind of in chapter three, presenting um, the evidence, the ways by which we can know we're born of God. And it really seems centered around this command to love one another. And so now we're getting into chapter five. And verses 1 and 2 of chapter 5 present us with a little bit of a problem, a problem of what looks like circular logic. Now, that's where A proves B, but B proves A, and you kind of go around in a circle in a circle. In in verses 1 and 2, John is telling us that everyone who loves the Father loves his children too. And we know we love God's children if we love God and obey his commands. So... If we love God, we'll love his children. We know we love God by loving his children. We know he loves his children by loving God. And it kind of goes round and round and round. Um, As I was reading, there are kind of two schools of thought about what this little seemingly circular logic could mean. It could mean, it could be that he is repeating in a very complicated and convoluted and very unobvious way his command to love one another. It could be um, that he's simply saying that we know that we are born of God if we love one another, and to love one another, we have to love God. Um, There's not really a consensus on what this means, and I I'm not, I mean, if people who have studied this for much longer than I have can't come to a consensus on this, what's happening with the circular logic, I'm certainly not going to be able to. So I'm not going to even try. Um, I'm just, it's there. And in either case, John doesn't leave us on this Ferris wheel of the circular logic very long. He's pulling us off of it pretty quickly um, right there in verse 3 when he moves into a definition. And in verse 3, he tells us that loving God means keeping his commandments. But he doesn't only give us this definition. He throws in this little addendum at the end, and he says, loving God means keeping his commandment, commands, and his commands are not burdensome. So if something's not burdensome, how do we approach doing it? With joy. Quickly, easily, without much whining and complaining. Yeah. John's assertion here is that loving God means that we obey joyfully. We obey cheerfully, happily, with pleasure. Um, We have the same attitude as the psalmist in 119 when he says, Oh, how I love your instructions. I think about them all day long. Or he says, your laws are my treasure. They're my heart's delight. I'm determined to keep your decrees to the very end. 
And in the immediate context of chapters three and four that we just talked about, um, I think we can, can have in mind this concept to love our brothers and sisters joyfully. And that's not always easy, is it? Because <laughs> we are all imperfect people with imperfect love, loving imperfect people with imperfect behaviors. So how is this possible? How can we joyfully and cheerfully and willingly and easily obey God's commands when sometimes they feel burdensome to us? And John tells us in verses 4 and 5 when he says, you know what, I'm forgetting about this. I'm just going, scatterbrained. When he says that for every child of God defeats this evil world and we achieve victory through our faith. And who can win this battle against the world? Only those who believe that Jesus is the Son of God. The NIV puts it this way. His commands are not burdensome. For everyone born of God overcomes the world. Who overcomes the world? Only the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. So what is John saying here about the root of our ability to joyfully obey God's commands? Any guesses? Yeah, I think I heard somebody. Yeah, faith in Jesus. So how is it that our faith enables us to joyfully obey God's commands? And I think there are two things in particular that came to mind while I was thinking about this. Um, Faith, when we think about the concept of faith, we're talking about trust. We're talking about trust. And trust moves us towards obedience. So let's think about it this way. Um, God promises us something in verse 11. If you have your um, Bible, somebody who has it, look down there and tell me, what is God promising? Eternal life through his son alone. John 10.10, Jesus himself um, reiterates this promise. He says he comes so that we might have life and have it to the full. It's both a whole and complete and unblemished life in the age to come and a life of freedom and of flourishing here on this earth. So God has promised. I trust that God will deliver on what he has promised. I trust that he loves me and he is good and he is faithful and he provides. And because I trust that, because I trust his character, I obey because I trust that God will deliver on his promise. Because I know that he's promised to work all things for my good, to conform me to the image of his son, which will lead to my freedom and my flourishing, I can willingly and joyfully obey even when it seems to go against the grain of my sinful and selfish nature. Thinking about it in the context of our command to love, can we love our brother or sister in Christ who seems impossible to love joyfully because we are confident, we trust that God's commands are for our good and that somehow loving that brother or sister who is hard to love will work something in us that is for our freedom and our flourishing. So back to my example, um, if I somehow in my 12-year-old little brain could have pulled myself back from the situation and remembered that my parents know me, and that they love me deeply and that they have the be- my best interest in mind. 
if I could remember that they had proven time and time again that the boundaries that they had set, the rules that they had given, the instructions that they had given have resulted in my good, I might have responded a little more differently. Um, I was a kid with a sensitive heart and an anxious mind, and frankly, probably nothing has much changed, but a kid with a sensitive heart and an anxious mind that is prone to running things over and over and over again. And I don't know if you've ever watched the movie Titanic, but it's a little intense. So the boundary that they placed was for my freedom from fear and worry. The boundary was to foster a peaceful heart in me. And if my 12-year-old brain could have been able to call these things to mind, call to mind that my parents loved me, that they were trustworthy, and that they had my good in mind. That boundary, that command, might have been a little easier to carry. That boundary and that command, I might have been able to submit myself to a little more joyfully. So our faith um, is equivalent to trust, which leads us to obedience. I also think we can think in terms of our faith being confidence. And our confidence moves us to courage. So in the Gospel of John, Jesus um, sitting in the upper room after telling him he's going to be betrayed and he's going to die and all these really scary, terrible things to the disciples. Um, Jesus admonishes his disciples to stand unshaken in the face of difficulty because he has overcome the world. In Galatians, Paul tells us that it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives with me in me, and I live by faith in the Son of God who loves me and gave his life for me. And in Romans 8, he assures us that we are more than conquerors through Jesus who loved us. So we can stand resolutely against the temptations of the world, and we can joyfully turn towards the ways of God because we know that the matchless power of Jesus is available to us through his Spirit. We can be confident in Jesus' victory. We can be confident that Jesus' victory is our victory, and we can stand in courage when it's difficult to obey. Now, let's remember our context here. Remember that John knows that we are forgetful people. He knows we're prone to doubt. He knows we're prone to wonder, and especially in light of all the competing voices that want to sell us lies, both then and today. So he's reminding believers of the truth, that Jesus is the Son of God. And when we think through the implications of that, God loved us so much that he sent his Son. The eternal word of God put on flesh and made his home among us. He lived facing the same temptations and the same struggles that we do, and yet he lived in a way that we never can. He lived perfectly and joyfully obedient to the commands of the Father. And then he paid the price we should have paid. Obedient to the will of God, he shed his blood on the cross for us. He is of immeasurable and matchless worth to us. So when we hear that Jesus is the Son of God and we really grasp what that means, we know there's only one response, and that's awe and obedience. And that's our true worship. 
So how can we be sure that this is true? How can we be sure that Jesus Christ is really, truly the Son of God? John offers us three witnesses. Well, there's a testimony. Three witnesses to the testimony. Um, he offers us in these verses water, blood, and spirit. I'm going to go ahead and tell you. Well, first of all, these three references seem to be a reference, a kind of hyperlink back to Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy, the law outlined that there were two or three witnesses required in court to um, convict someone of a crime, to support a testimony that would um, convict someone of a crime. So this idea that he's presenting three witnesses is a, is a legal argument for the testimony of Jesus Christ as the Son of God. And the, and the three witnesses, water, blood, and spirit. Um, I will go ahead and already and tell you that there is not a consensus on what the water and the blood represent. Um, some places I have studied say water and blood is the water and blood from piercing Jesus' side. Some say think that water and blood is a reference to our baptism, the sacraments of our baptism, and taking communion. Um, it seems like probably the most common and probably strongest argument can be made that the water and blood refer to the baptism of Jesus and his death on the cross. Um, and that is what I lean towards in, in what I've read and studied. Um, but that third witness is one that we can be sure of. Third witness is the spirit who is truth. We see that in verse um, 6. The spirit is within us. And the spirit who is truth can only speak truth. He can only speak to us the truth that he has received from the Father. So the spirit within us speaking truth to us, affirming our belief in Jesus as a son of God, produces the fruit of ongoing faith in us. And that brings me to um, another thought about faith that I have is that um, faith is a mysterious and miraculous work of the Spirit. Um, if we look in verse 1 of chapter 5, it says, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has become a child of God. And most of the commentaries I looked at pointed out that the verb tenses, pointed out the verb tenses that are used, wanted to make that note. Um, the present ongoing faith that we currently have is evidence of a new birth, a new regeneration in our hearts that has already occurred. So um, I'm going to read to you Ezekiel real quick. He, the, the very, very basic context of this is that God is talking to the exiled Israelites through one of his prophets. And he says, I will give you a new heart and I will put a new spirit in you. I will take out your stony, stubborn heart and give you a tender, responsive heart. And I will put my spirit in you so that you will follow my decrees and be careful to obey my regulations. So quiz time again. What is the original state of our hearts? Yeah, we have hard hearts. So who does the work to change our hearts? And what makes it possible for us to believe and to live in joyful obedience? Right? 
Faith is a mysterious and miraculous work of the Spirit. So our ability to joyfully obey is not something that we produce in and of ourselves. That, too, is a mysterious and miraculous work of the Holy Spirit in us. So back to that testimony that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Why is this belief so important to John that he's repeating it over and over and over again um, in his book, in this letter? And we see it in verses 11 and 12. He has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever doesn't have the Son doesn't have life. So our victory over this evil world is found in Jesus Christ alone. Our freedom and our flourishing on earth are found in Jesus Christ alone. Our glorious and our eternal life in the kingdom to come is found in Jesus Christ alone. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and the good Father who sent him to us are worthy of our joyful obedience. So I wonder today where you might find yourself having a hard time joyfully obeying. I wonder where God's commands are feeling burdensome. Maybe um, think over the last few days and look for a time where you might have had trouble loving the way that you were called to love. And let's think, what could be the root of that struggle? Um, Is it that you need to remember the infinite goodness of God, that he has your best at heart? Do you need to remember the matchless power and worth of Jesus? Uh, We're going to end a little differently today. I am going to leave these questions up, and I'm going to encourage you to take a few minutes to think about them. And then I, rather than me closing us in prayer, I would like you to take a minute to pray in your hearts and minds. Um, And ask the Spirit to remind you of truth to increase your faith and to move you towards joyful obedience. And I know that being put on the spot to think things over and pray about them can be a little difficult, even when you're not having to do it out loud. So here's what I'm going to do. First of all, here is um, just a little guide. If you find yourself having trouble thinking of what you can pray as you're reflecting, here's some words. Sometimes somebody else's words can be helpful to us. And here's another three. Um, I am going to put the questions back up. And there's a song that I love called The Benediction, Breath of God by Christine Uncles. I've been listening to it on repeat this weekend. Um, and I think I've been listening to it on repeat this weekend for today. So I'm going to play the song while you think and pray. And... Um, And when the song is over, we're done. You can go to your groups, okay? All right. Yeah.
Go. 